right, uh, here he is, Father Malachi Martin. Father? Good morning or good evening, depending on your time zone. That's right, time zone. Time zone. <laughs> We're all over the place. You sound very good. You sound in good shape, Art. I don't know how you managed to remain always so chipper. Uh, well, it's simple. So, uh, I, I think it's just like you, Father. We're both doing what we enjoy. Yes, I suppose that is the secret. I remember the last man to say that in public was um, Jimmy Stewart. He said he was paid to do what he loved to do. Uh, so this is the case of the same thing, uh, I suppose. Tell me this, uh, on your mind, you had something about asking me about my my uh, background and training and that sort of business. That's right. There have been uh, a lot of inquiries, apparently, uh, because you're a very public person, about your background and your training and um, how you came to the priesthood and what your current status is. So yes. instead, of my, in, you know, instead of my reading a bio, why don't you just go ahead and tell us? Yes, I don't want to bore people in office. You can always ask me a question if I'm obscure on any point. Um, the, the, uh, and it's, quite, it's quite short and brief in its own way, except I'll try and fill in the details where it's necessary uh, to give a better picture. The, I was born in Ireland, of course, in Kerry, in Ireland, uh, but way back in 1921. Now, Father, I'm going to ask you to get a little bit away from the phone, if you would. Okay, what about this? Much better. Okay, uh, it's a question of uh, locating that uh, that speaker. Um, and I joined the Jesuits, the Jesuit order, the order of the Jesuits. I joined it in 1939, just as war was being declared. In fact, I did it three days after we heard uh, Prime Minister Chamberlain of England declare war on Germany. And Germany had attacked Poland. And uh, I remained in Ireland for the duration of the war uh, because we couldn't get out. It was dangerous to travel. Uh, and uh, during that time, I got a university degree in Semitic languages uh -huh. and uh, Oriental art and archaeology and history. And um, after the war, I taught. I, I went to philosophy for three years through the Jesuit rigorous training. And uh, we went to philosophy for three years and got a degree from that. And then they had me teach little boys French and Greek for a couple of years. Every Jesuit had to undergo that teaching experience. Uh, because if you can teach Greek and Latin to little boys who just want to get out of class, you have learned to teach. <laughs> and after that, they sent me to Belgium uh, to a place called Louvain, um, where I studied theology for four years and uh, where I was ordained a priest, uh, a member of the Jesuit order, and I spent another uh, three years getting a doctorate uh, in Semitic languages, Oriental art and archaeology and history. And I did a special work published in two volumes on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I spent a lot of time in uh, the Middle East and uh, studying the actual scrolls themselves. And I uh, became an expert in paleography, that is, ancient handwriting. Mm -hmm. um, it all sounds very boring, but it was very exciting. No, it's really not boring at all. It uh, was very, very exciting. And then they brought me back to Rome to a place called the Biblical Institute. That's the central part of the Vatican which trains uh, professors of Bible. And I became a professor uh, uh, and uh, with tenure of uh, Hebrew and paleography, and New Testament, and Old Testament, and of one or two other languages, like Aramaic, which is used in the Bible, yes. and was the language to which Jesus spoke. Um, but I arrived just down there in 1957, 58, and uh, the old Pope, Pacelli, Pius XII, um, had died, and his successor was John XXIII. And his great collaborator was a Jesuit called Father Baer, Augustine Baer, a German Jesuit who lived in Rome, had been in Rome for years. And uh, he took a shine to me, and his room was just beside mine in the Jesuit house. And uh, at that time, John XXIII was very keen on establishing a new relationship with the Jewish community. So he brought me over to John the Twenty Third, um, who was very keen to know, have some young man. And I was in my thirties, uh, some young man who was trained in Talmud, which I was, mm -hmm. 
and uh, in 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 Bible and in the biblical languages, because John was setting up a huge uh, network of relationships with Jewish organizations in Europe and in America. And uh, then he, because he was going to hold a thing called the Second Vatican Council, mm -hmm. which met finally in 1962 and lasted until 1965, lasted all of three years. John died uh, in the middle of it in 1963, but his successor, Paul VI, kept it up, and I was functioning all that time. But however, I had gone to my superiors in 1959, 1960, and said, look, I'm not satisfied the way things are going and they said why well i said because i don't i don't i don't uh, agree with some of the policy decisions being made and i don't agree the way the, these decisions are being implemented all right may i may i may i if i can stop you there and sure. ask you uh, a few specifics what mm -hmm. did you disagree with i disagreed with changes modernizations of uh, the liturgy and i disagreed also with the the general trend in Rome at that institute was to uh, diminish the age-old tradition about the nature of Scripture as being the Word of God. Uh, the dominant school of thought was a Germanic school which held that uh, much of the Bible could be explained uh, as a form of literature as a form of popular uh, myth-making. Somebody's story. Yeah. And uh, that could, of course, if it were pushed, could affect the central beliefs that I had as a Catholic. Of course. Uh, namely, the divinity of Jesus, the fact of the resurrection from the dead, and uh, hell, heaven, and purgatory, and everything, finally. Uh, because if you begin to throw doubt on the gospel stories, the historicity of the gospel stories, uh, you're in trouble. And indeed, uh, today, many Roman theologians will not state categorically that the res resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. They say, yes, it took place, but uh, they won't call it a historical fact. Hmm. It's a whole, it's, a, it's what's called the higher school, or the school of higher criticism. Um, so I couldn't agree with all that. And then um, there were other disciplinary matters to, I thought that the, what had made the Jesuit order so successful was its inner discipline, and that was being loosened. But everything was being loosened in those days, uh, uh, Art. There was a spirit sweeping through the Roman Catholic Church as regards the old rules and the old discipline that resembled a tornado at its height. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but uh, so we, we, they decided that, uh, all right, if you want to go, you can go. Now, but I was a Jesuit with, the, with uh, four vows. There was poverty and celibacy, or chastity, as you call it, and obedience, and then a fourth vow of obedience to the Pope. Uh, there's a special core of Jesuits who have that fourth vow of obedience. It really means the Pope can call you in any morning and say, please depart from Tahiti and stay there. And do such and such and such and such, and you can't ask for your ticket or for your support. You just do what the Pope says. Let's see if I've got it right. Poverty, chastity, obedience, obedience and a special vow to the Pope of, of obedience, a special special vow of uh, devotion. Uh-huh. Um, so I went to Paul VI, who was the Pope then, when I decided, when I was, see, this is 1964, and um, he, he said, all right, if you have to leave, you have to leave. I can dispense you from your vows. Which ones do you want to be dispensed from? So I said, well, I've got to earn my living, Holy Father. And for that, I'll need to um, not have a vow of poverty because my vow of poverty means I can't earn any money or keep any money. And he said, all right. And I said, then I, I, I have to release my vow of obedience because I don't want to obey my superiors any longer. And he said, all right. I said, I want to keep my vow of celibacy because I am a celibate and I want to remain celibate. Mm -hmm. um, the vow of obedience to you will be immediately automatically dissolved. That's canon law if I leave the Jesuit order. And he said to me, well, do you want to, uh, do you want me to find you a bishop? At the present moment, there are al al almost 2,000 bishops in Rome at the council. 
I'm sure several of them would like to have you in their diocese. So I said, no, I don't. I don't want to be under a bishop. So he said, well, they won't like that. <laughs> he was very funny, really. He had a sense of humor all his own. We used to call him El Gufo. Uh, because he looked like an owl with his face, he goofed for. And he said, well, they won't like that. You're not going to have a bishop. Uh, where are you going to get your authority from? I said, you will have to give it to me, Holy Father, or your successors, by some special arrangement. But I, I want to be a priest. I want to be celibate. I want to write. And uh, I want to have very active in, in TV and radio and lecturing and talking and confessing. And there's a storm coming over the church anyway, which you yourself are always talking about these days. And indeed, Paul VI was always talking about the storm let loose, like a tornado. Yes. Uh, and uh, he finally ended up by saying, as you know, in public, a couple of years later, the smoke of Satan has entered the sanctuary of the church. We are now invaded. Anyway, so we talked about that, and he said, all right. Uh, but he said, then, what you, uh, what you are asking for is this. There's a form which you know of called laicization. Uh, and he said many people make the mistake of thinking that a priest like you who undergoes laicization becomes a layman. And he said, as you know, that's false. You never, never become a layman. Once you're a priest, you're a priest forever. But laicization merely concerns who has authority over you. And you want me to arrange it so that no bishop and no religious superior has control over you. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, we'll have to make some special arrangements about that. <laughs> because he said, somebody must have some check on you. So he made those special arrangements, and there's always somebody in Rome to whom I refer my life to and discuss my money with. They don't ask for money, but they must know what I do with it. And they can always check on what I state in public if they don't think it is doctrinally safe. Mm -hmm. um, so he said, you won't be. You see, art, Rome is run by ministries. They're not called ministries in the Vatican. They're called congregations. And um, there's a, a ministry or a congregation for the bishops. And it's called the Congregation for Bishops. And then there's a ministry or congregation for clergy. And that's for clergy, like priests and so on and so forth. So, uh, you are still a priest. Oh, yes. Uh, you are simply a priest now who is allowed to write books and uh, derive income from those books. That's right, but I'm not, uh, I'm not under any of the congregations directly uh, because I, I don't belong to a bishop and I don't belong to a diocese. So you're a renegade priest. No, 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 no. They're, they're no. In fact, a lot of people would like it if I were because uh, uh, writing... For all that length of time and talking to so many people over so much so so much, so much radio, they would like it if I swung away because I'm really known to be fuddy duddy conservative, and you know me as that art. I well, think. that I guess I was uh, I was conferring an honor uh, upon you. I, in I, a way. I, I, I fully realize uh, you uh, uh, you're a very conservative uh, a priest, and in that yeah. sense, uh, in light of today's church, you are sort of a renegade. That's right. That's right. In that sense, yes. The the the, the the, uh, it sometimes puzzles Catholics because they used to priests who are either members of religious orders or who are uh, under, under a bishop in a diocese. And I'm not either of those things. And uh, no, but no congregation in Rome will claim authority over me. Uh, but I'm not alone in this matter now. There are well over a thousand priests throughout the church in the same status as I occupy. But it's, uh, it's very hard to explain to people, because once they hear that you've been laicized, they say, oh, well, you're a layman, though. But <laughs> you're not, actually. Well, we're not. I'm not. So in every sense of the word, uh, you are still officially a priest. Oh, yes. Yes, and there, there, there's no doubt about that, whatever. The, um, the, uh, it allows me a certain great latitude, but it also uh, puts restrictions on me. Because uh, I can't back every political cause I'd like to back, because there are limitations on me for that. Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to. Uh, I don't think priests should be politicking. Uh, that makes me want to ask you about your political views. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I have views, of course. I'd, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be a dumbbell if I hadn't got uh, uh, views. But uh, to fling one's weight into a political fight, which I sometimes would love to do, 
I restrain myself because I think, between you and me, I think that the one thing Jesus dislikes is politicking clergy because he had a lot of trouble with it in his day. Uh, so I think that... Uh, well, I, I have to frankly wonder about the entire process of politics. In other words, uh, to attain high office uh, in this land today, Father, it seems as though you must be an accomplished prevaricator. It seems to me that you cannot do it with clean hands. I may be too condemnatory in that sense, although I'm not condemnatory. I hear confessions all day and forgive sins as a, as a Catholic priest, as a human being. But uh, it would seem that you've got to prevaricate, yes. You have to speak out of two sides of your mouth. You have to promise knowing you will not fulfill your promises. And you have to pretend you side with an issue because it's good for you for re-election. Is, is that a sin? Or, or uh, would you say that even a good man trying to enter the political world to do good things yes. uh, would have to do what he has to do, uh, do to get where he wants to go, to do the good things he wants to do? It's, it's complicated, but I think it's quite clear what you're saying. Well, I suppose that there are limits, you know. There are certain exaggerations that are now allowed, uh, which uh, are understood to be exaggerations. In a, on, a, in, a, on a politician's mouth. Father, uh, hold on just a moment. We're at the bottom of the hour, and we'll be right back. Back now to Father Malachi Martin in Manhattan. Father? I asked as a point in connection with what we were just talking about in the previous hour, and it's this, that uh, you call me Father. Yes, sir. And the priests are normally called Father. Uh, it has become the habit that if uh, you're not called Father officially, uh, since I have three doctorates, I chose to be called Dr. Martin or Father Martin. Many people have called me as that, and there's no difficulty with that, except, for instance, in the Archdiocese where I live in New York, the Archdiocese does not want any priest that's not part of the diocese, and I'm not part of the diocese, and not to wear clericals, clerical clothes, yes. arm collar and the black suit, yes. or not to be called Father, uh, officially. But I just want to note that a lot of Catholics, they meet you for the first time and they find out you're a priest, but you're, you're wearing a shirt and tie. Well... They find that shocking. Is it okay to call you Father? Oh, yes. Good. That's, that's what I am and that's what I profess to be. Good. I'm just noting that small point as a consequence of my the status I sought to get. <laughs> about politicking clergy, yes, uh, about politics itself. Uh, it's a very, very trying affair for the soul art, I think, because you've got to make so many compromises. Well, yes. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to launch into a big political discussion, but I'll say this about politics. Uh, there was a day when I discussed it uh, frequently, uh, or even most of the time on the radio. Mm. And in the, the last years, Father, yes. um, it seems like what they argue about and discuss in Washington is more and more irrelevant to our lives. Me too, it seems so. To me too, it seems so. And therefore I'm not very interested, unless you wanted to discuss some political uh, problem, case, situation. Not me. Uh, not me either. I really, <laughs> I don't find it interesting. Then I find the majority of my, my fellow citizens, of ordinary men and women, are not really uh, exercised about it either. They, they have other problems and other considerations. And that there's something new happening anyway, out there, as we say with the demographers. There's something new happening to men and women. Uh, there's a, there's a, a new situation in the minds that I don't think the politicians yet have tumbled to. They don't know what's going on. Um, well, I, I, would you think? I would join them with that. I, I'm not sure I know either. I just know we are at the edge of momentous change. Yes, we are. Yeah, there's a, there is a change taking place, and nobody can formulate it quite accurately yet. And I suppose until it becomes a de facto situation uh, encased in laws and in practices and in the constitutional amendments, we won't know what it is. But there is a change taking place, and uh, I can characterize it in a certain way, but it won't be a complete characterization very hard to pin it down. But there is a change. When I interviewed you, Father, um, oh, gee, it goes back uh, 
At least a year. Uh, um, a year, maybe a half a year at least. You made a statement that stuck in everybody's mind. You said, this spring, watch the skies. That's right. Now, there was a most remarkable event over, um, uh, over um, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, most remarkable. Um, uh, something gigantic uh, hovered over that city uh, to the point where um, Frances Barwood, one of the council women in Phoenix, um, called for an investigation. A gigantic hubbub. There have been things seen all throughout this spring in our skies that we normally do not see. Uh, I'm, I wouldn't characterize them uh, as uh, alien spaceships or devils or uh, weather inversions or flares or anything else, uh, something is going on. But there were, there, there, there were these extraordinary uh, phenomena, huh? Yes. Well, Art, I'm very glad you've told me that because nobody else did. Uh, nobody brought it to my attention. But I used to say, and it still holds retroactively, that if between the end of winter, uh, 97, and the end of spring, 97, there were such there were such signs in the skies. Then that heralded uh, something very very awesome, and something awesome and therefore fearful. In within within say six or nine months of that time, certainly before winter of 1998, is it over? and probably uh, before this calendar year, 97, is over. And I still say it. Uh, Father, you said you work extensively on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, how much of the information in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, is now not public, uh, and, and will it ever be? And what do the Dead Sea Scrolls reveal? Well... The answer to the first question, Art, is very simple, and it is a, a, a needed statement. There was, for quite a while, a constant rumor being repeated, especially in the popular press, that somehow or other, either uh, Roman Catholic priests or Jewish rabbis or Jewish scholars, or some group anyway, had found certain scrolls, certain writings, from Wadi Gumran, that's the place in, in Jordan now, where the original writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls lived, a place called Ayn Feshka, and that they, these, if they revealed these documents, that they would upset every traditional view of Christianity and Judaism. Now, we have examined every inch, the truth is, we have examined every inch of every Dead Sea Scroll. Every scroll produced in the scrollery, produced by the scribes, uh, 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 transcribing them by hand. Mm -hmm. There is nothing extraordinary being kept from the public. What is being kept from the public is the publication of all the documents, because it takes a terrific amount of time to decipher them, and to print them, and publish them, and translate them. Uh, but nothing has been hidden by a cabal of scholars, uh, Christian or Jewish, and uh, it's a very, it gives a very false impression. That's the first thing to say, that it is all accessible. It now is all accessible, and as time goes on, it will be more and more studied and uh, uh, illuminated by scholarship. All right, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are large unpublished portions there of are. the Dead Sea Scrolls. There, there, there certainly are. And then it's, sometimes it's not so much that they're large unpublished, but significantly some things are small little scraps. For instance, only in recent years, Art, have we found out that one scrap, it's a, I suppose it's about, it's about the size of the palm of my hand, which is certainly from the scrollery, and which certainly dates from about, or oh, about 10 years after Jesus died, and presumably Jesus died uh, by crucifixion in the year 33. But this scrap, coming from the scrollery in Wadi Gumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls place, the monastery as we call it, has on its back a quotation from the Gospel of St. Mark. 
shows that the Gospel of St. Mark was circulating at that time. That would be about the year 45 or the year 50 AD. Mm -hmm. And that is revolutionary. That mere small little fragment. And so on. There are other surprises to come. Now, there's one thing which we must keep in mind, though, and it's this. The soil in Palestine, the soil in that part of the country, that part of the world, I should say, that now it's mainly Israel, is a dry soil which preserves things. Yes. And I am certain, I, I will probably be playing a harp. I'm very hopeful about that part of my life. But I will be there because I'm 76. But I think that in time, that land is going to yield ancient manuscripts. Uh, they will be found by archaeologists and published. And they will help revolutionize our entire concept of the Bible. For instance, art. Do you know we have no pre-exilic copy of the Bible? What do I mean by that? Well, as you know, the, the, the Jewish population of Palestine was led into exile in the year 594 by King Nebuchadnezzar. And that was the exile mm -hmm. to Babylonia. We have no copy of the Bible dating from before that time. No pre-exilic copy. I am certain there are pre-exilic copies. So it's like the missing link. That's right. And it's a funny thing, the further we get away from those events, way back 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, uh, 3,000 years ago, the more we find out about it. It's the inversion of history. So that is coming. Now then, about the significance of the scrolls themselves, they confirm everything we know about Judaism. Uh, there's nothing in them which is specifically Christian at all. At all. At all. At all. There's nothing specifically Christian. And, you know, Jesus, when he was taken prisoner one night, the night before he died, uh, he was being interrogated. And the, the one of his interrogators said to him, what have you been teaching in the streets? What's your doctrine? And he came back very strongly. Jesus never turned the other cheek, by the way, ever. And at that same interview, by the way, somebody struck him across the face. Somebody struck him. He didn't turn the other cheek. He turned on the man and said, why did you hit me? Hmm. If I've done something wrong, say so. If I didn't, what why did you hit me? But anyway, he, uh, Jesus answered to the accusation that he was teaching doctrine, said, I'm sorry, I have never taught. And then he used an expression in uh, Aramaic, and in Greek, it's, we have it in Greek, which is normally translated as in secret. Basod would be the Aramaic. But Basod is the term used in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the official documents of the, of the group of, of people who were there, to indicate their special meetings, their professional gatherings. So what he was telling the, the, his interrogator was, look, there are those fellows out there by Wadi Gumran, and they're revolutionaries, they're Essenes, and they're zealots. And uh, uh, they are your enemies because they're revolutionaries. But I don't belong to them. I don't teach in their gatherings. I don't frequent them. So there are traces that Jesus knew about it, like that in the New Testament, if you know how to read it. Uh, but there's no, in the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves, there's nothing specifically Christian at all. Um, there's a lot that can be learned about the, the times in which Jesus lived and what people believed. And I could spend the next three hours going through the New Testament, pointing out where there's an incident between Dead Sea Scrolls and the Gospels. Uh, but that's not really relevant for the moment. All right. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, about something uh, very recent on the horizon, uh, Father. Um, there have been a number of people. Uh, there's a new book out by uh, Mr. Drosnan. Mm -hmm. uh, called the Bible Codes. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I have not interviewed Mr. Drowson, now I have interviewed a man called Stan Tenen. Yes. And he has, for 30 years, been work working on the ancient Aramaic. Yes. Um, and claims to have, this is very interesting, to have deciphered, uh, yes, indeed, a code in the Bible, mm -hmm. in ancient Aramaic. Mm -hmm. uh, Arama Aramaic, I guess. Aramaic, yes. Yeah, thank you. And... He claims a most fascinating discovery that these codes translate into geometric patterns uh 
that uh, if viewed uh, actually allow, for example, in Genesis, one to enter a state of experiencing not just what is written in uh, Genesis, but what actually occurred. It's it's a most intriguing. Uh, I must read that book out. I haven't read it yet. Uh, so that uh, and and then he claims, of course, that uh, some people have not come out of the experience as whole people anymore, really? and that uh, only those who are the most pure are able to have this experience. Anybody can have it, but not anybody can come out of it uh, uh, totally sane. <laughs> Gee whiz, I didn't know that. I must, I must look at that book. And I was wondering, I, I guess, have you heard about the public? Oh, I've heard about it, all right, the code, Bible codes. I've heard about it. Um, and indeed, there has always been a, a tendency, uh, not more than, more than a tendency, there's always been the habit, especially amongst Jewish scholars, uh, Talmudic experts, to read uh, the bare words of the Bible, which is mainly Hebrew, but some Aramaic, but mainly ancient Hebrew, to read them in such a way that they get a double meaning out of it, and a more profound meaning than the simple meaning we take from the from the historical parts of the Bible. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And there's, there's art, have you heard about an art called gematria? gematria? No, what is that? Gematria is, actually, it's a, it's a word used in the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, um, but it comes from the Greek word geometry. But it's, uh, gematria is the use of the letters of words, say, in the first line of Genesis is Bereshit bara elrim etashamayim v'taharas. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Yes. But they take each letter and they give it a value, a numerical value. Yes. And they translate those numerical values into other words more profound than the bare statement uh, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. It's called gematria. And um, uh, the uh, sometimes the, the results are astounding. They really are astounding. And uh, Do you consider it then possible, Father? I consider this as a possibility. If you know something did happen, you find confirmation of it in Gematria. But it's really a confirmation. Uh, new revelations about God, new revelations about the evolution of mankind, new revelations about God's nature, about our destiny, and about holiness, and about the entire question of religious belief. No, I don't consider it reliable. You must have it beforehand, but Gematria does provide a confirmation. Uh, there are books published on this, uh, and uh, you have to know math very well. And you, nowadays, you must be able to use a calculator because you've got to run off and you calculate the value of a word. Um, well, the the man who published uh, the work called the Bible Codes, Drosnin, yes. uh, claims that uh, it is predictive, that it is prophecy. Uh -huh. um, I find that explanation far less elegant uh, than Mr. Tennant's, which is that these geometric patterns produced by the Bible codes actually allow one to experience uh, what is generally written in, in, in the King James Version, for example. Yes. Uh, and that's a very elegant uh, explanation indeed, and if true, um, I, I, I can't say it's something I could try because I'm not nearly uh, pure enough to try it, but... Um, nor me, nor I. I do not feel that either. Then it goes against, I must say, I couldn't do it from the point of view of doctrine, because I don't believe that uh, that's the way I'm supposed to find God. I'm supposed to find my belief. Um, uh, I have a far more, uh, what I would call an objective norm. Uh, that's not to attack anybody as subjective. Uh, but the difficulty is this art that if I'm allowed to set up rules of interpretation, which I choose arbitrarily, arbitrarily because I'm just a one single person, and with that I find out uh, that uh, I can predict such and such and such and such. Uh, first of all, people must wait to see are those predictions fulfilled. Yes. Otherwise it's a fake. 
And while I'm waiting, I still am hanging on the subjective interpretation of one single individual. And that I find very shaky, uh, especially if I'm seeking guidance for concrete decisions. Should I marry this woman? Should I have children? Should I invest in this business? Should I believe this? It's, it's, it's a shaky basis mm. for concrete decisions I have to make. Is it honest of me to, uh, to conclude such and such a deal? You know, and I need guidance. I'm a moral being. And I can be very immoral if I haven't got guidance. Indeed. All right, Father. Uh, hold on. Well, we'll be right back to you, Father. Yes. Uh, this August, again, I'm going to remind you to stay a little bit away from your phone, if you would. Is that better? Yeah. Oh, infinitely, right. yes, sir. I'll, I'll do that religiously, I hope. Religiously. <laughs> uh, Father, this October, I'm going on a trip which is going to take me uh, to Rome. I've uh, never been to Rome. I've never been to the Vatican, and I'm going to go to the Vatican. What should I see? Well, that provokes an awful lot of thoughts in my mind, Art. Um, and uh, uh, entre nous, between you and me, let me provide you with one or two names uh, to go and see when you do go there. Oh. And if you to give me your dates, but I will talk with you separately about all that. All right, all right. Uh, but uh, apart from that completely... Um, there is so much to be seen there that my one main advice to you is to make a choice beforehand uh, uh, because you can't stay there forever. Um, As a matter of fact, I'll only be in Rome for two days. Well, then in two days, there are certain things you can see and are worth seeing um, and that uh, repay the, the time put into it. Um, you can see St. Peter's and you can see the Vatican museums, um, the main museums in one day, uh, less than one day, in one good outing organized by some agency. And there are many good ones in Rome, and there are many good ones here that organize it in Rome for you. Now, if I were to use your name, that would not get me into the secret archives, would it? Uh, well, if you use it with a, a certain men, whose names I'll give you, yes. Oh, my. <laughs> get you a visit there. It's oh a fantastic my. thing. Do you know there are seven miles beneath the surface of Rome? Seven miles? Secret archives. And you enter this thing, and when you enter it, the light goes on, and as you move through it down along the passageways, the light behind you goes off, and the light ahead of you goes on. Oh, It's a fantastic my. thing. Oh. It's a fantastic affair. What I would give to be able to see that. You can. You can see it, all right, but if you, you can, in a, a short visit, though, you just look at it and you pass on because you haven't got the time. Right. But uh, you can see it. And then there are various other parts of Rome uh, which should be seen. Um, but the main one would be the Peter's Basilica and uh, some of the main Vatican museums because they're, they're magnific you've never seen such magnificence uh, and such art. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, it's a marvelous thing. It, it's, it's simply marvelous. And Rome has uh, some aura which exists no place else. And uh, they say, non si parte di Roma. Nobody ever leaves Rome once you've been there. And it's true. Um, but uh, before you go, I must know your dates. And th before, I mean, before you go to Rome. Um, oh, indeed. I, I will let you know. I, I'll, be, I'll be in Rome, actually, uh, I, I believe October uh, 2nd. October 2. Well, no, that's wrong. Now, I, let me get back to you on that. Yeah, actually, it's we, at the end. We can talk separately, but we have all the time. All right. Uh, here's some facts I want to read you. We're going to get down to some hard stuff here. Yes. Uh, dear Art, I'm sure the good father would agree that belief in God must come from one's own faith. Yes. Then it would, uh, would it not be true that faith is necessary for one to believe that demons also exist? I personally believe that his God, meaning yours, Father, yes. or any God does not exist. To me, it's all a fairy tale. So, would my non-belief of the angel and demon, God and devil, heaven and hell dogma, mean that I am one whose body cannot be possessed? And if so, what does that say about that particular theology? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I guess, uh, number one, would somebody of his sort uh, be somebody whose body could not be possessed? No. No, no. His body can be possessed. 
compassion, there's, it's the peculiar lock on the will, and that's generally what sends them, the, the ones that are saved, sends them running for a priest or an exorcist. Uh, what happens in some cases is that they go further into it and are completely uh, programmed and controlled. Well, and then you have perfect possession, out of which I have never seen any person emerge. Never? Never. I haven't seen them. No, I'm only 76. So it is, it is not, sir, the uh, the classic possession that we all recall from the exorcist. Um, no, that, not that, but a, a more perfect... Um, it, it's a perfect possession. You see, the, the classical form is the person who makes themselves very obnoxious uh, in their behavior. And they're really like the child. When a child is hungry, uh, an infant who can't talk, they bang their heads on the ground. And they throw themselves around. They may protest. And they're saying, I'm hungry, or I'm dirty, or I'm thirsty. Uh, that's one form. and uh, that, Something can be done about that. But when they're perfectly possessed, they don't ask for any help. And they, they, they eschew any help. And uh, you can how, many, how many people, Father, do you think are in that condition? Uh, let's just talk about America right now. Forget the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, On a percentile basis? Sure. A minimal crowd. A minimal set of people. Uh, by minimal, what do I mean? Well, we are 260 million, isn't it, or something like that? Yes. Um, I'm trying to make a proportion between the the number I've known and the general population. I suppose about uh, about 10 million. 10 million. If I if I am in my mind, I'm calculating the proportion people I've been with in this whole field. Well, here's a tough question for you. Uh -huh. Would we, would we uh, generally, if we could see these 10 million people, yes. would we find that they are the powerful, the successful, the... Yes. Uh, would. None of them are obscure. None of them are failures. None of them are without respect and means. A lot of them are in high places. And as Charles II said about his ministers, the higher they go, the higher they climb, the blacker their bottoms get. <laughs> but that's the very worst possible scenario for the world. Uh, these are the people who are shaping policy. Well, that is the difficulty, that we do find the, those in charge of things. Uh, and when you do, uh, I, but I've, seen, I've seen the following take place in a certain bureaucracy which I won't name, but a, a very well-known bureaucracy mm -hmm. um, of a worldwide nature, not merely American. People by people, people by men and women of ordinary means, some of them Hindus, some of them Christians, some of them Jews, some of them nothing at all, but with a natural, what I know for want of better, for a civic virtue, isolating somebody who's obviously perfectly possessed and getting rid of them because somehow or other they, they just, everybody agreed there was a consensus that this person um, was in alliance with something that militated against their best instincts as human beings. I've seen that happen. And not for any religious motive either. Just not, I mean, consciously religious motive. Do you understand what I'm saying? That they, they, they felt uncomfortable in the presence of this person. And yes. also saw that the direction of their actions and decisions, which they had power to take within the bureaucracy, was evil, humanly, just humanly, just humanly. Um, I've seen that happen. But yes, there are people in very high places, as well as in normally high places, who are perfectly possessed. There's no doubt about that. And uh, they will never be saved. As far as my experience in life goes, Art, I don't doubt God's grace or God's greatness and God's power, but neither do I doubt or belittle the power of Lucifer, because he is the prince. Uh, Satan is something else. As you know, that's not the same being. Satan and Lucifer are different one from the other. But I don't belittle the power of Lucifer. He is the prince of this world, as Christ called him. And he has his 
he has his kingdom. Uh, and at the present moment, he reigns supreme in the middle plateau. Well, if Lucifer yes. has all of these perfectly possessed people yes. uh, that are in effect in league with, have made a deal with him. That's right. Then why does Lucifer from time to time do this horrible thing and possess the otherwise totally innocents who have not asked for in any way um, any sort of deal with him? Well, nobody is possessed against their will. You always say yes. Even the semi-possessed, even the obsessed, which is the stage prior to, obsess to, to possession, they say yes. You are never possessed against your will. You're never obsessed against your will. Huh. You open a door and you say, well, who are you? Or put a foot in and let me look at it. Or <laughs> It's partial invitation. Mm -hmm. now the, but what must be stressed is that this doesn't happen to everybody who's just barely naughty. If you understand, I use the word naughty to cover all sorts of human malefactions. I'm sure. But uh, it, it doesn't follow. It's a random thing as far as we're concerned. But there's one more thing which we must stress. And it, it's, it's not a cause for pride on our part, but it's this, that Lucifer it can be intensely stupid, as Satan can also, as all demons can be. They're extremely limited, in their knowledge. They don't know everything. They're not all powerful. In fact, they have merely been conceded certain powers by God. And that is one of the mysteries of this creation, why the why evil spirits have been given power. But that they have, and that they reign supreme on the middle plateau, there's no doubt about that. Father, I recently saw a movie called The Craft. I don't know whether you've ever seen it. I've heard about it. Uh, it is about four young women mm -hmm. uh, who decide they will call upon dark spirits mm -hmm. to do their bidding. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's quite well done, um, calling on dark spirits from north, south, east, west. Yes. Um, it's a horrifying uh, movie. Uh, and to back it up, I've interviewed a number of people who suggest that young teenage girls, particularly young teenage girls, yes. uh, are powerful. Uh, they frequently have things occur around them where poltergeist problems have occurred. That's right. uh, they've occurred around young teenage girls. Now you have these four girls actively seeking out the dark forces to do their bidding. Yes. Is such a thing possible? Oh, yes. And it's an everyday occurrence in our experience. Now, it's not that everybody does it, or a lot of people do it, but as far as happening art, it's an everyday occurrence. Back now to Father Malachi Martin. By the, by the way, Father, uh, yes. uh, WABC Radio uh, in New York, mm -hmm. uh, the big one there in New York, is having discussions with us uh, presently about possibly uh, getting on the air there. Oh. Is he big